impetus from the White House to end the cyber skill shortage. And secrets, lies, and advice? A ransomware group offers tips to organizations. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Anna Delaney. The Biden administration hosted a White House meeting this week with a number of technology, banking, insurance, and education executives to focus on cybersecurity and national security issues. With me to share more on what was discussed is managing editor for GovInfo Security, Scott Ferguson. Great to see you, Scott. Anna, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Scott, we know that the Biden administration met with more than 20 tech, banking and insurance and infrastructure executives at the meeting. And hot topics included supply chain and critical infrastructure security. What was actually unveiled at the meeting? What was mostly unveiled in the meeting is a set of initiatives that are going to be going forward that the Biden administration wants to start and also bring along some private industry companies, as you mentioned, into this. So there's a NIST framework that's going to be developed for supply chain security. Uh, Biden is also bringing one of his initiatives that was originally meant for the electrical grid into gas and oil companies. So that's part of it. There was also some initiatives around education and supplying money for greater programs to bring more cybersecurity professionals in there. There was a few insurance companies who came out and said, we're going to require minimum standards for those companies that want to buy our insurance. You have to meet certain standards in order for us to issue you a policy. So I thought that was interesting. And of course, I think what the big splashier item was, of course, was Microsoft pledging, I believe it was $20 billion over five years for cybersecurity initiatives. And then Google coming out and saying they're going to be doing $10 billion in cybersecurity initiatives over five years. So I think those are the main takeaways from from that particular meeting. How it'll develop over time, we don't know, but at least that's what, what came out of the discussions yesterday. And and according to a senior administration official, the president wanted the event to be a call to action on the root causes of malicious online activity. Did it live up to expectations? Well, I think what you said there too, Anna, is that the White House wanted to take an approach that they want a public-private partnership. They want these companies to voluntarily come out and both support what they're doing and then go back and bring their partners and the other parts of their ecosystem along that they'll adopt these standards. What the White House is trying to do is trying to bring private industry along, knowing that there will probably be some congressional action taking place where a lot of this is going to become law that they're going to have to follow. So their message to private industry was start doing this now, because eventually it's going to be required of you in law if Congress passes some of this stuff but we want you to get going on it now before that happens. So they're trying to walk a fine line between the two. But yeah, I mean, I think for some of that, to get some of these initiatives underway and to bring some of these bigger companies in and to get some big pledges, at least got some of that process started. And the meeting also placed an emphasis on solving the skill shortage. What announcements encourage you? Yeah, you hear this all the time, like this cyber shortage, we can't hire enough people. So as I mentioned before, Microsoft, $20 billion over five years, Google, $10 billion over five years, significant amounts of money to go towards not only newer technologies and improving supply chain, but also education. You saw IBM come out and they're going to be training 150,000 people in cybersecurity, some colleges, some community organizations, code.org as promised to bring some of this to the classroom. So I think that's kind of the softer part of it. It's, it's sort of the easier ask for some of these companies, but they felt that that was a pledge that they could bring in there. And I think also too, you saw Amazon 
opening up some of their ecosystems for some more training. They're going to offer the training they give employees to the public for free. So if you're just interested in this, you can probably go up to Amazon and say, give me this training. Here's the materials that we use uh, going forward. So again, it's, it's a little bit of a softer ask, but I think it raises the bar and it kind of brings it to the forefront with the greater general public outside of the CISO and the security community. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Despite the apparent exit of high-profile groups such as Darkside, Revil, and Avidan, ransomware attacks continue. For more on the state of crypto-locking malware wielders continuing to crash our collective party, I'm joined by Executive Editor Matthew Schwartz. Good to see you, Matt. Hello, Anna. So Matt, with some high-profile groups seemingly going defunct, are we getting any respite from ransomware? Unfortunately, no. Ransomware attacks seem to be continuing practically unabated. So we've seen the likes of Darkside, Rebel, Avidan apparently duck out. But experts have told me that it's really easy for these groups to spool up under different names, to take their crypto-locking malware, maybe give it a little bit of a refresh, and to bring it back to the market, so to speak. A lot of these groups will have long-lasting relationships with affiliates. So these are the individuals who will take the ransomware code for these ransomware-as-a-service operations. They'll take this malware, infect victims, and when victims pay, the affiliates will get a cut, usually 70% or 80% of the ransom, with the rest going to the operators. So unfortunately, just to summarize, we're not seeing ransomware-wielding criminals go away, and I don't think we're going to anytime soon. And have we seen any signs of dark side, revil, or others returning? Yeah, that's a great question, because it's not been too many months before they either announced that they were ducking out or they appeared to have their infrastructure get disrupted because it suddenly went offline. So Darkside got into a spot of bother after it hit Colonial Pipeline in the U.S., triggering panic buying of fuel up and down the East Coast. Colonial Pipeline supplied 45% of the fuel used in the East Coast. And so it's been a big question, are they going to come back? And earlier this month, we had confirmation that a new group called Black Matter does appear to be basically dark side rebranded. That's based on a look at the actual malware. It's very difficult, unless you want to create something from scratch, to hide the fact that maybe you're carrying through 98% of the old malware into the new. And so obviously experts can look at that and see the similarities. In addition, though, the blockchain analysis firm Chainalysis said that based on the wallets being used, it also believes that Black Matter is just a rebrand of Darkseid. So we have these two groups coming back. And just in terms of, to your question of is ransomware going away? No, not at all being the answer. We're also seeing other groups such as Hello Kitty, which has been around for over a year, coming up with new tricks. So recently, researchers have spotted a Linux variant, for example, of Hello Kitty that targets VMware's ESXi hypervisor. This is used in cloud and on-premises data centers, which makes it attractive for ransomware-wielding attackers trying to shake down victims for millions of dollars in payoffs. So we're seeing this kind of maybe upskilling, if you will, 
from certain groups. Other groups like the 1% group, which were first spotted last November, is the focus of a recent FBI flash alert. We have another group called Alt-DOS, which Singapore just warned about as well. It's another ransomware-wielding group. So we've got newcomers as well as some of these old comers rebranding. Now, for criminals who supposedly live in the shadows, it seems that yet another ransomware group has offered a tell-all interview. So what's up with the LockBit 2.0 representative who calls himself LockBit Sup? Yes, what's up with LockBit Sup? Well, relentless self-promotion would be the short answer. We continue to see ransomware affiliates and operators giving these supposedly tell-all interviews. Now, shocker, I know, there are oftentimes lies contained in these interviews. For example, we've seen in the past that some of these individuals will claim that they don't hit healthcare entities, when in fact, the people interviewing them at security firms and whatnot have traced this precise individual to hits on healthcare. So we need to take everything that these individuals would say with a grain of salt. But if you're looking at this particular interview with the LockBit 2.0 representative, probably one of the core operators of the group, some of the things that jumped out to me were his advice for organizations about how not to fall victim. He says, employ a full-time red team. These are also known as offensive security engineers. Basically, they do penetration testing before the likes of a ransomware attacker comes along and does it. So he's saying, you should be doing that before we do it. Also, regularly update all your software because this is how attackers are getting in. And finally, he recommended, well, not just using good antivirus, but also educating your employees constantly on the threat posed by social engineering attacks and how to spot those. So like I said, you need to take all of this with a grain of salt, but there was some interesting good advice in this interview with this ransomware-wielding attacker about how organizations can prevent themselves from falling victim. Also, he previewed that supply chain attacks are probably going to become more constant. It's an obvious target for attackers, as are businesses in the US and the EU, simply because of the revenues they're earning, which draws attackers to try to shake them down for the promise of potentially an extremely large payday if they can crypto lock their systems. So. More ransomware, more sophistication, more big targets, but we're seeing plenty of small targets too. And finally, a lack of proper security configuration with Microsoft's Power Apps has led to the exposure of data from some 38 million records. For more on the story, here's our managing editor of security and technology, Jeremy Kirk. A curious data leak unveiled this week exposed at least 38 million records, but it involved no hacking whatsoever. The records were leaked by hundreds of online portals that were unwittingly misconfigured by organizations that used Power Apps, which is a Microsoft service to quickly spin up web apps. Among the companies and organizations that were leaking data were American Airlines, Ford Motor Company, J.B. Hunt, the Maryland Department of Health, and the state of Indiana. Even Microsoft actually misconfigured several of its own portals. The exposed data included personal information related to vaccine booking appointments, drug test dates, social security numbers, COVID-19 tests, as well as employment and payroll-related information. Accessing the sensitive data involved a trivial modification to the URL for a Power Apps portal. 
The problem was discovered in June by the security company UpGuard, which specializes in evaluating risks to data. Since then, UpGuard has contacted 47 affected organizations that had some of the most sensitive data exposed. Microsoft has now fixed the problem, however, or at least made it less likely that companies are going to make this error. It's changed the default setting in Power Apps to make using the service more secure. Prior to the change, the company had warned in its own documentation of the danger of insecure configurations in Power Apps, but apparently that went unnoticed. To get into the nitty-gritty of what happened here, Power Apps can use OData or Open Data Protocol RESTful APIs to display data on portals. Power Apps can be configured to require authentication for access to those OData list feeds or allow anonymous access. OData APIs can pull data from lists, and those lists pull data from tables. Microsoft has a menu of permissions for the tables, but by default, those were off. Organizations needed to set them, and many just didn't. Microsoft has now changed that. As of Power Apps Portals version 9.3.7.x, table permissions are now enforced by default for all lists. Why so many big-name companies missed that Microsoft's default settings posed a danger isn't exactly clear. But I spoke with Greg Pollack, who is the Vice President of Cyber Research at UpGuard, who had an interesting theory. He surmises that Power Apps was just so easy to use that people likely just spun up applications without fully reading the documentation, which warned of insecure configurations. UpGuard and Microsoft have put much effort into contacting organizations that had some of the most sensitive exposures, but there are likely some still affected. Pollock says that hopefully other organizations will check their settings now that the issue is receiving wide attention. The Power App situation harks back to the days when Amazon S3 buckets were commonly found left open on the web, resulting in data leakages. Pollock told me that Amazon eventually changed the default settings to make those kinds of configuration mistakes at least less common. On Wednesday, I did a scan and found 2,500 Power App subdomains and looked at a handful of them to see if there was data exposed that probably shouldn't be public. Most seemed secure, but I did find some loan data that probably wasn't supposed to be in the open. But it looks like, for the most part, the message is getting out. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's it from the ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.